Mad Messiah, a comic saga in four cycles by Edmund Grace. Dedication to Vladimir and Estragon. When I was 19, I went to see Samuel Beckett's play, Waiting for Godot. Usually when I went to the theatre, it was with friends, but this time I wanted to be alone. I wasn't sure how my friends would react, not to the play, but to my interest in it. So I sat there, watching the antics of two strange characters called Vladimir and Estragon, Didi and Gogo to each other. At some point, I could hear in my own mind these words, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani. If you want to know what they mean, imagine you are Jesus Christ, nailed to a cross and about to die. Then roar out, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The play is about Didi and Gogo passing the time as they wait for Monsieur Godot. But the play ends before Monsieur Godot arrives. I like Didi and Gogo. I like the way they live in hope, instead of sitting back and looking on and knowing everything and doing nothing. The poems which follow were written with Didi and Gogo in mind, and my hope is that one day you or I might meet them face to face and recite one of my poems. I think Didi and Gogo would like what I have written. Prologue, the Icon Beneath the haloed bearded mask reflecting fragments lie. They ask one question with four parts of me which make me partly sad. And here our playful saga starts. Dublin Southsider Aging Jesuit, bruised male, Irish Catholic. Down all the days, I call his name and sing his praise, and wonder what makes Mad Messiah mad. The first cycle is called Reptiles and the Rising Sun. And each cycle begins with a fragment. And you recognise, I think, from the first poem where the fragments come from. The fragment for the first part is called Dublin Southsider. We civilised, well-spoken folk of Dublin town, with solemn eye and roguish frown, have long admired the smooth displays and scornful tone and biting ways of hatred's hero, smiling, born to win. But in this lonely ancient place, on the grey half-buried skin of the hero's frozen face, in bitter edgings of remorse, hatred's charm has run its course. Poem 1. Killer Cain When Killer Cain had done his worst, he was vigorously cursed, 
and with melancholy air began to wander here and there, and found that every door was closed, and every heart aggrieved and ill-disposed. Just when all hope had gone and Cain was heaving tearful sighs, a curling, gliding creature came along with slender tail and sympathetic eyes. We knew your parents well. We took their part when they so swiftly fell from grace and were so tragically maligned. Here at the world's remotest end, our outcast breed will always be inclined to greet a child of Adam as a friend. We know all about misanthropy and strife, and how one brother might so easily kill another with a knife. And we greet your story with that eagerness with which unswerving sharks express their love for meat. It's only fair to mention an enduring source of tension on these distant shores, the awkward, outsized feet of dinosaurs. They won't endure forever, being far too big and not too clever, and with every passing night they sing the same sad song of how they are so right and how they soon might all be gone. And finally, we've heard reports about your wish for solitude. We fully comprehend how the burden of celebrity can leave you out of sorts, and so we recommend a place where no one will intrude. There you can wait until the end of time, alone and free with your story and your crime. Poem 2, The Coming of the Dinosaurs A dinosaur came of gargantuan girth. She was ready to grovel and beg. She asked for a soft, overgrown plot of earth. For I fear I may soon lay an egg. Only then did the dinosaur recognize the smirking lips and scheming eyes of a highly skilled and charming snake. Might I recommend a lonely isle on a distant lake with a faithful friend? From time immemorial snakes had agreed, as our lady friend figured too well, that dinosaur eggs were a tasty feed the slithery bits and the shell. And sadly aware of her limited choice, she spoke with a scornful edge in her voice. No doubt you have a price in mind. The snake, with a diffident smile, began to stealthily unwind. The very suggestion of payment is out of the question. Utterly vile. Then up from the valleys, down from the trees, out of hedges, rivers, and seas, came an obscenely slithering horde. But the dinosaur raised her big, flat feet, and swiveled her head, and loudly roared, and at this unfamiliar sound the snakes politely yielded ground, contemplating swift retreat. There are differing views as to how it all ended. The snakes insist that friendship was intended, with an occasional bite, Nothing worse. But the dinosaurs have always said, There are filthy and mean diabolical curse, and soon we'll all be dead. Poem 3 The Little Dinosaur and His Big Sister 
Two little dinosaurs one day set out on a journey side by side. One was timid and dreamy-eyed, and he raised his head in a hopeful way. Will you sing me a song? She looked down, quite at a loss for words, and terribly cross. What are you thinking of? Don't be a fool. We never sing songs on the way to school. With a keenly felt and tragic pout, his nethermost lip came curling out, but Sister swiftly took firm charge, her pointed finger looming large. If you start making an unholy show, the bigger boys will give you hell, and I'll have you know they'd be blackguarding me as well. The little fellow turned his head. He sadly gazed and quietly said, Would they be saying bad things to you? You'd better believe it, by. They would, too. With head held high and lip uncurled, he was ready for a brave new world, and long before the day was out, he was able to push and shove and shout. Now his sister had warned from the very start that snakes were mean and smiley and smart, but he wasn't prepared for the venomous glee of a villainous snake who jeered at the dinosaur family one day near the end of break. Little brother called for an honest fight, but the snake lashed out with fearsome guile and then, with a curious smile, drew back to inspect every delicate effect of his well-placed bite. The little fellow fell to the ground, and the cowardly snake, with sickening skill, got ready for the kill. Then, as from a distant heavenly shore, he heard Big Sister's thundering roar, Beat his dirty little hide, and leave nothing inside. The devious and gloating snake had lowered his guard, a stupid mistake, and little brother gave him a clatter on the head, and his eyes went black and his nostrils bled, and the whole school started to rejoice as he went home howling at the top of his voice. Years and decades lumbered by, but big sister never forgot the day when she saw him swiftly fly like an arrow to hit the spot. It was better by far than that glorious day, when with frowning resolute flare he took the slitter in mid-air and sent it curving sweetly under the bar. Each year, when his family came to stay, they drove in a smart but reliable car, and the children saluted passers-by with a wave of the hand and a hesitant, Hi! They listened with bemused respect as her aunt would brazenly connect her rough-hewn world to theirs. In spite of his wife with her elegant airs, and his house with the glorious view of the sea on Merrion Avenue, I'll always remember that day when he sparred with a slippery devil in the old school yard. He's come a long way, but truth to tell, he's still fighting snakes, and he's fighting well. On hearing... This is enchanted lore from an ancient far-off place. They were eager to find out more on the journey home, but all their curiosity broke like crashing foam along the silent dignity of Dad's determined face. They retreated to the soft refrain of tires swishing in the rain and window wipers waving their hands in the night. Right, left, right, left, right. Poem 4. 
the quivering rattlesnake. When changing tides allow, the yawning mile of Dublin Bay lays bare the troubled brow of the quivering rattlesnake. There are those in Dublin town who greet her story with a frown, but many are proud of the way in which she rudely brought awake the self-contented scene. When the day is cold at the water's edge, and the air is clean beneath the blue still sky, I come in rest of mood to this unlikely hermitage, and watch my thoughts unfold, and in that sweet pride of solitude I hear a distant fearful cry floating on the winter sea. The simple beauty of that sound cuts through the tidy ground of Dublin's narcissistic mile with the untouched ancient guile of wounded memory. Rattlesnake disappeared that day. The news went about in a furtive way, calling for funeral rites to begin, and many anonymous feet joined in from Cavendish Row to Merrion Square, talking of why she had gone and where. In the afternoon breeze, the doorknobs, the trees, and a doubtful sky saluted the mourners passing by, and from the shadows of the crowd a voice came, clear and loud. Among the whispered calls of cobblestones and warehouse walls, I saw her in the cold street light, and her quivering tail was a pitiful sight, and when I gently called her name, no answer came. My hands found nothing but her grin, and her dried-out, ink-marked skin. And I was alone in the threadbare street, where bottles and bags and reptiles meet. Poem 5. Monsignor Boa Constrictor In times gone by, every danger to the nation's soul was greeted by the watchful eye of the Reverend Monsignor Boa Constrictor. He would open his amazing jaw and swallow it whole. His undisputed sway among the loyal and the old is keenly felt to this very day and for this reason we hereby present his final will and testament. Thinking of the life I had, I contemplate the latter years, when every kind of mad and brazen masquerade came jiving through the land with smirks and sneers. On behalf of all things good, I took a disapproving stand, but the insolent parade swept along like a river in flood, now my life is ebbing by the hour. Deep within me lies a forge for every dark and demon trick, and a putrid slick lurks beneath my gorge with a taunting and devious power. Before you frolic in the realm of death, draw it loose and take a sample of my breath. Poem 6 Mother Anaconda Mother Anaconda's girls and boys took care to make as little noise as possible. If she came through that door, those who misbehaved and might end up wicked and depraved would be dealt with from her store of finely calculated punishments and made to howl and weep and wince. 
With accurate mouth and steely eye, she noted every strand of uncombed hair and every maladjusted tie among the wayward children in her care. She would pounce with blinding speed and skill on all who dared to mispronounce the most trifling syllable. Then her children came of age, and the creaking door of the cage of terror opened wide, and though she resolutely tried to counsel and explain that their audacity would end in pain, they heedlessly began to shout and heave and struggle out. In bleak and pensive mood, she listened, as her thankless brood started calling out her name, with accumulated howls and tight-lipped blame and sad offended scowls, and preparing for a fight with all her whinging enemies, she moved, with hardened ease, to put them right. Come forward, fling your stones, bring your cameras and your microphones, your gasps and groans of disbelief. They'll bring me no more grief than I've already suffered at your scrawny hands. I am the one who spent her days enduring all your squawks and brays, and the wearisome demands of runny noses, spelling and addition, and you dare to call for my contrition. The simple candor of that moment caught the bond between the teacher and the taught. Then the stones flew, one by one, until their long-awaited work was done, and all began to quietly disperse, proud to rid the country of that curse. Poem 7 The Great Black Mamba The Great Black Mamba's candid eye could see the well-fed, rounded lie, longing fervently to bask in the attention of the crowd. Warming to his task, Black Mamba quietly began to hone each question like a sculpted fang, and raising the microphone with smiling agility, he swiftly sprang. The mask of plausibility was stripped away, and once again truth had triumphed. Many were proud to see the dawn of such a day. A deputation of admirers made its way up to Black Mamba's high secluded cave, a place of stone and simple furniture. With noble chin and eyes demure, Black Mamba kept the messengers in sight, and when they arrived and placed their plan before his watchful frown that he might be the nation's judge of right, his seldom seen and unaffected charm, took the timid envoys by surprise. You overdramatize the virtues of this fragile man. What I have seen and heard has worn me down. Smiling at their innocent alarm, he invited them to be at home at the foot of his leather and chrome one-legged stool. Were I to accept your brave request and bathe in the shallow pool of public glory in this wretched land... Who could confidently state that loyalty would stand the test of power? The stony hand of treachery would lie in wait. They raised Black Mamba high on his black leather-cushioned seat 
and curled and wound their way in an elaborate feat down to the people with a resolute cry. Black Mamba's bitter judgment must be said. The people gathered on that day to see Black Mamba candidly assess with solemn inclination of his head their integrity and worthiness. His smile revealed an unexpected sight, a mouth the color of the night. Poem 8 Tony Cabra The Cabras as a family were high above reproach. They had no time for snakes who sought to pester or encroach, and they only spat at others who were able to spit back, unless they had clear evidence of venomous attack. But they thought that the most reputable policy by far was to hold themselves aloof behind the window of the car. The father of the Cobras was a formidable kind. His wife, with an elegant turn of mind, was noted for intelligence and charm. Tony, they had hoped, would be their pride and joy. But for some hidden reason, some unexplained harm, he became a difficult and tiresome boy. One day, when the Cobras were eating together, exchanging remarks on the wine and the weather, the thoughtful and playful and nonchalant tone was disturbed by the tiresome sound of the phone. When they answered, an old and reliable friend, unmistakably clear at the line's furthest end, was telling them heatedly just what to do. Turn on the TV, right now, channel two. Tony was appearing with a large enameled earring and a skewer through his nose in one of the more disreputable shows. I really have no time for those who moan and whine at every unsuspecting chat show host about their childhood misery. I've yet to meet the family which manages to coast along in constant celebration. The candid telling of a tale of youthful desperation brings relief. But why not write it down? A book of tragedy will never fail to help your bank account. Mine is on sale for a modest amount. It details a regretful lack of caring sensibility and gives an honest airing to the phobias and fears which have troubled me since childhood years. Tony's parents were alarmed. They asked their eldest son, who practiced law with great success, to offer his opinion. I find clear evidence of reputations badly harmed by filial abuse, though common sense would say that greater haste brings less reward. The issues will unfold more clearly when the film rights are sold. Poem 9 Peter Python Among his well-trained audience, Peter Python's masculine physique receives due deference. Performing with Olympian skill, he likes to place each helper off her guard with knowing grin and sly critique. 
Yet as he glides into his gown, he notes with thoughtful frown that levity has never marked their necessary focus on the task of knowing when to mop his brow, what to proffer, where and how, enabling him to bask, certain of being fully understood in their devotion for the greater good. The curtain rises day by day on the stage where he alone holds sway and effortlessly plays the part of noble sovereign, guardian of life, over open cavity and trembling heart, not with a scepter, but with a surgeon's knife. Poem 10, Eddie Aller there are not many who begin without a penny and end by making money grow on trees. Eddie Adder is one of these. In his early teens as an office boy with Fagan Kelly and Malloy, he swiftly learnt the ways and means of the charming smile and the watchful pen. Starting with an advantageous loan, secured with skill and acumen, he went out on his own and in due course became a billionaire. He was invited to endow a chair by an admiring university, and with his famed ability to reassure the anxious and perturbed, he knew what might be best allowed to lie discreetly undisturbed as a forest of cranes rose to the sky. His critics through the years had spoken with foreboding eyes of how his meteoric rise would end in tears, but confidence and devotees tranquilly betrayed not one glimmer of unease as Eddie's smoothly programmed cavalcade swept aside all blame. Then, one day, a lone accuser came calling for his rights in open court, I carry a compendium of files, with checks for curious amounts, a trail of foreign bank accounts, and an auditor's report on the never-ending wilds of the accused. Eddie's counsel rose to his full height. My client is saddened and bemused, and intends to vigorously fight every last outrageous claim. So it was with deep regret this morning in the early hours that he instructed me to ask that the hearing be reset for a later, more convenient date. He has been suffering of late from a pitilessly throbbing knee, which has undermined his powers of narrative and subtle argument. From the crowded gallery... Eddie's victims in the throes of righteous discontent howled in wounded majesty. We who have suffered, seized, and wept are entitled to know where his keys are kept and everything his doctor knows. An order was made to leave no stone unturned until Eddie's whereabouts was known, and soon amid triumphant shouts the hearing was adjourned to a private clinic on the seventh floor with a startling drop to the ground. His accusers gathered round, and Eddie saw it was too late. He raised his head and drew from his deep store of charm and plausibility. Do not underestimate how fervently I sympathize with the need to earn one's daily bread. 
But every fool must realize that the curse of gullibility, along with the accompanying strife, is one of those sad realities of life. Poem 11 The Assembly of the Snakes Seamus silently endured his fate amid the tangled wires of office life, the sharpened smiles, the slick routine, the well-groomed strife. One night when he was working late, he heard an unexpected call. Leave the clamour of this jaded scene, the traffic jams and the suburban sprawl, and dedicate your energies instead to making pottery and candles and brown bread. He left his briefcase and his tailored coat behind, and found a small, remote and friendly place, and settled down to tranquil productivity, until one evening, as the sun went down, he saw with fearful clarity the imposing shadow of a dinosaur. Excitedly he waited, maybe seven hours or more, every detail annotated, every movement, every sound, every scratching of the ground, till with the brightening of the day he saw the shadow turn away and sink into the furtive slime. When the assembly of the snakes asked to hear what Seamus had to say, he raised his head with the solemn sway of a warrior dance in ancient time. I saw the beast. My heart still quakes at her immeasurable size. Her lips were thin, her nostrils wide, her spine bizarrely fortified. With fangs prepared to fight, I confronted this alarming sight. But she gently closed her eyes and drew a breath, as if to speak. Tears rolled down her cheek, and whispering my name, she returned to whence she came. The scowling, lofty-headed faction had the first and negative reaction. We resolved to hear no more of this abominable dinosaur. A lecturer in ancient Greek then raised his head and asked to speak. Dinosaurs are typically found in the sea and underground, and in some cases have been known to fly, but not one of them can cry. The venomous faction arose, shaking many a fist. Projectiles flew at the chair and missed, and the air was wildly Stung by many a dripping fang and forked tongue until they heard a lonely shout. I am the beast you are speaking about. Everybody turned around, not a whisper, not a sound. Above them stood the dinosaur, and limping down to take the floor, she innocently tried to win them with a well-worn toothless grin. I suppose... That everybody knows about my lamentable, gory, and simply frightful story. I see no point in endlessly repeating what can be heard at every crossroads meeting. Suffice to say that the unassuming decent day of dinosaurs will soon be gone. I ask for little, 
that my friends might sing a song and that my enemies refrain from disparaging my name and using spittle. She saw the factions jointly heave the most sceptical of sighs. They took their leave with grim formality and weary eyes and faces resolutely squared till they gathered in the great outdoors defiantly prepared with well-rehearsed dislikes and rusty guns and ancient pikes for the showdown with the dinosaurs. Poem 12 The Mother of Sin In the corner of the land where snakes pass by with a curious grin we are given to understand there lives an old snake called the Mother of Sin. No one remembers how she came to be called by such a name, but nowadays they all agree she lives unostentatiously. I am waiting in midwinter's dawn, searching for a way to unlock the secrets of the day when God alone gave birth, when an ocean of uncertainty was filled by the distant passion of the sun, and love first spilled its fire upon the earth. I watched as Adam in his dream reached with hope for the skies, and the sun's first beam drew out the rib of flesh and opened his eyes to a companion in creation. I could feel his gaze as the loving conversation rambled along Eden's ways, until we both came peacefully to rest, and among our whisperings agreed that touch and taste had made us blessed beyond all need. But in those moments hidden from the sun, our lips betrayed that shadow of pretense, in which the lurking harbinger of grief makes lovers discontented with belief. Our triumph was to be undone, when friendly footsteps in the grass playfully laid bare our shame, and arguments of wounded innocence and angry protestations were to pass into a fretful measurement of blame. Bowed beneath the burden of his fear and undecided love, I came to toil among the secrets of the soil where kindly prophecies appear. And the pride of one who longs for beauty, gentleness, and songs by the shore of ancient seas, among half-hidden memories, will walk beside us yet. There is a joy that lives beyond regret. Poem 13 The Clown In the temple of the town A sad, conceited clown Is calling every voice to shout The snakes are silently slithering out And rising with a furtive glance He will wave his arms and start to dance The conical hat in the circus top Poised precariously over the drop, wavering side to side on the rope as fingers reach to grasp and grope, when a fatherly hand with cold command grips the groin with iron will. Further onward, further still, the last are first, the first is least. Summon your sons to share the feast. A youthful head against his heart, 
pleading eyes and lips apart. The line of his hand, the wine in his breath, betray the shimmering shade of death. Limping lewdly onto his knees, he lowers his head between the trees, and out of the curtains comes a kiss. The courtiers start to laugh and hiss with folded arms and pointed leer. He's only a child. He shouldn't be here. And an aging monarch with multiple chins waves his hand and sips his gin. The mob is milling around the gate, sowing the seed of strife and hate, with the governor royally raising his arm. He's only a child. He means no harm. But the voice of the mob is dark and raw, with craning neck and menacing claw and the blink of a cold reptilian eye. Give us Barabbas and crucify. A man who knows the popular mind, stepping silently behind with thoughtful frown upon his face, his fingers flow with flair and grace. And down the whip with a whining crack, and the governor calmly turns his back. A sadly stooping scarlet clown with tangled hair and thorny crown, silent in disgrace. A guard comes over and slaps his face. Aching bones and weary feet clumsily climb along the street, slipping and slumbering into the mud, leaving an image of sweat and blood. Men look on with fearful mind, children falling in behind, dogs are weaving through the throng, sniffing the ground and running along, and women are wailing while he goes in one of Jerusalem's holiday shows. Into the block they knock the pin with horrible hammer and clamor and din, up with the arms, out with the chest, into the beam the buttocks are pressed. A writhing dance of agony now plays before the waiting crowd who watch with curiosity. They relish every move until the performer's head hangs bowed and still. A well-used spear casually breaks the flesh apart. Blood and water from the heart falls to earth in a silent second birth to reveal a wounded snake for all to see. Poem 14 The Legend of the Wounded Snake Beside a lone and windswept lake To the sound of lapping water Warriors, bewitched and ill at ease Are searching for the wounded snake The women laugh and tease Whispering that blood and slaughter Are in truth his hiding place Whoever meets him face to face, or so the ancient story goes, will vanquish their foes, and thereby hangs a tale of grief, because the tribes of ancient days fought with a warlike proud belief in the legend's holy power until that shameful hour. They saw the armoured horseman raise to roars of victory the captured crown. Our task is done! And holding high the royal wounded one, they carried him across the sea. A pitiless dawn had come, and the dip of a gnaw like a broken drum moved towards the shadow in the mist where with slow and stately list and tattered remnants of pride, defeated warriors set sail. Those remaining on the shore saw the gap grow wide and felt the tearing of a veil woven from the sacred store of ancient memories. 
a voice from the shadows and the mud called out in sorrow. We who struggle, scrape and borrow, dedicate our tears and blood, calling on the wounded king to save us from a cruel grave. Others came and saw the sign unfold of a severed, bloody hand with warlike deeds of old and royal command. Though we were few, with foes on every side, we knew the holy champion would bless our covenant and banish wickedness. In the Valley of the Kings, where ancient wounds come face to face, the call of rival gatherings found a likely halting place, and the rising sun revealed two swordsmen, Cain and his twin brother, each with a mirror for a shield, holding the image of the other. With the flash and clang of the sword, many a restive glance hovered like a thirsty fang, waiting to sink. The swordsman clashed repeatedly in unrelenting dance, till blades in fearful symmetry opened up two glamorous ink rivulets of red. The brothers bled their souls into the ground. No corpse was found. But through that night the tribes remained awake, remembering the wounded snake and the sombre call. Cain, the protected one, is dead. On whom does sevenfold vengeance fall? Poem 15 Brother Cain Midwinter's early morning light moves along the hill to the opening in the wall of white and shines with ancient skill along the silent passageway. I reach and find and gaze and grieve at the pitiful display of an old man drooling on his sleeve. Another morning comes to mind when two brothers made a vow to bring a friendly sign, a token of sweet laboring. You brought the finest wheat and grapes plucked freshly from the vine, and Abel came to greet you with his newborn lamb. Your eyes were merciless and calm as you made him plunge the knife, and in the widening pool of blood with envy seething in your soul you watched the ebbing of a life, the beauty of your brotherhood. You put your arm around him then, inviting him to take a stroll like two brothers, friends, two men. And from his unsuspecting love the sacrificial knife you hid, till, like a hand into it love, the blade into his belly slid. And as you turned your face to flee, his bleak, bewildered pain sank with bloody stain into your memory. Your hands are old and withered now, as you cringe and bow and touch the waiting stones of this dark recess. I bring the bread of faithfulness, the happy cup of memories, to reach your unloved groans. My fingers touch your wrinkled face with ease. 
I am God's oldest and most foolish son, born to gather Abel's blood. Now come and kiss the wood where love's victory was won, for I have brought a fish to eat, caught in the deepest pool of praise, salmon of wisdom at your feet. I bring Abel by the hand from those early carefree days, and side by side we stand. Can you hear the refrain of our unlikely song? Come from the darkness, Brother Cain, and see the rising sun grow strong.